What's up, heathens? Welcome to Heathenology, the place for the uncontrolled. I'm your host, Heath Johnson. If you're enjoying these posts, please consider sharing and or subscribing for as little as $5 a month. All right, let's get into it. Out of the Mouths of Babes How Logic and Reason Tear Down Evangelical Theology My 14-year-old daughter was talking with me the other day, which if you have a 14-year-old daughter, you know can sometimes be a rare occurrence. She was talking with me about some questions she had concerning the story of Noah. You know the story. The world was full of sin, and God was regretful that he had made humankind. So... He resolves to wipe the slate clean and start over. Rather than starting from scratch, he decided to save Noah and his family and get rid of the rest. He gives Noah the instructions on how to build an ark, and once it's done, God floods the earth, ensuring that everyone else drowns. Oh, he also saves only two of each animal in a similar fashion, allowing the rest to drown with the evil humans. Noah gets in the ark along with his family and the animals and survive the devastation intent on rebuilding and repopulating the world. Now, anyone who is a student of logic can see through this story in an instant. You would have to be trained to avoid certain questions, avoid honest discussion, and use the old, with God, all things are possible defense to not let rationality consume this story in its path which, if a lot of us are honest, is exactly why we believed this story at face value for as long as we did. My 14-year-old, however, reached this conclusion far quicker than I did. Her mother and I separated when she was one years old and took very different paths. I began to question everything while she doubled down. They had a discussion about the story of Noah, and according to my daughter, it went something like this. Mom, why would God kill everyone on earth except for Noah's family? Well, because they were evil, honey. They were all disobeying God. Well, that doesn't sound like a very good parent to just kill their children if they disobey. Well, they rebelled against God and were going further and further away from him, so he had to punish them. Even the children and babies, what did they do? Well, they would have grown up to disobey him, so they had to die also. Why are you asking so many questions about this? Just curious, I guess. Upon hearing this explanation, my daughter realized that this story makes no sense, and any explanation given just leads to more confusion. She ended the conversation there. Once back at my house, she brought this encounter up with me and we discussed any possible alternative explanation for the story of Noah. I spoke with her about my history with believing the story and what I now believe the story to be about. This is a story, I told her, about the divine making a promise to mankind. Remember, at this time in history, most people believe that humans had to make promises to gods, not the other way around. When devastation and natural disasters occurred, such as a flood, it was believed that the gods were angry with the humans 
and were punishing them. So when the destruction was over, they would make a promise to the gods, often with a sacrifice, in an effort to once again gain favor with them and to not reap more punishment. In this story, however, it starts the same as any punishment story does back then, but then at the end, it takes a left turn. The God makes the promise, not the humans. It's almost as if the writer was trying to relay to the readers at the time that when disasters occur, it doesn't mean it's from the gods. If God promised never to flood the earth again, and then later a flood came to the area, it now couldn't be from God. For the readers at the time, this was a revolutionary story. It's the thousands of years of theology and Sunday school illustrations that caused us to take it literal and lose the deeper meaning. Now, while she agreed that my explanation made more sense, I could tell she still wasn't fully convinced. And to be honest, I'm not either. I mostly shared this with her to show her how my beliefs have changed and will likely continue to change with time. It was a lesson in progress for her, teaching her that thinking through things thoroughly is a life practice of utmost importance, even if you end up at a different conclusion than your parents. We continued talking, and I decided it would be interesting to give her a lesson in doublethink. Doublethink is, remember, believing two contradictory ideas at the same time. From the popular George Orwell book, 1984. A Christian theology is littered with doublethink all along its path, and each one is willfully ignored from the pulpit. I brought up the story of Lucifer, i.e. the devil, getting jealous of God before his fall from heaven. If Satan was cast out of heaven, the presence of the Lord, etc., where was he before he was cast out, I asked. Well, he would have been in heaven. He had to be because that is where he was kicked out of, she responded. Okay, what are we taught about heaven? What does not exist there? Sin. That's why he was kicked out, because he was jealous of God and jealousy is a sin. Okay, good. Now, I continued, if sin does not exist in heaven and jealousy is a sin, where did Satan get the jealousy from? Or let me put it another way. How did Lucifer sin in a place where sin does not and cannot exist? She thought a moment, and then her mouth dropped open with an unaudible, oh my God as if she had finally had the light turned on so she could see. He couldn't have, she exclaimed to me. This is the power of logic. If you keep asking questions, eventually you'll either end up realizing that a story holds up or that it doesn't. The double think involved in this story is so obvious, yet most people are blind to it because they don't ask the question and worse, are indoctrinated to not even think about asking the question. So, they go their whole lives simultaneously believing that sin doesn't exist in heaven and that Lucifer sinned in heaven. I was taught that truth will hold up to any scrutiny, and if it doesn't, then it's not true. 
The irony of it is that I was taught this within the Christian worldview with my instructor's intent on helping prove their theology. But logic and reason are powerful tools. So powerful, in fact, that we fail to use them only because we find comfort in believing a lie. And I say that not to be demeaning. Lies can give us temporary rest because we can create our own reality that makes sense for us. Some of us, unfortunately, will live out our whole lives in a lie and pass this lie down to our children and their children. And before we know it, 2,000 years have passed and we have a dominant world religion full of people who do what they are told and believe what they are told, easily moldable to the whims of their leaders. While a lie can give us a false security and meaning, it is the truth, remember, that sets us free. Reality can be frightening, and it's sometimes downright devastating, but the more we engage with it, the less of each it becomes. We become free of ideologies, double-think, falsehoods, and can begin to grow fully engaged with the world as it actually is. This is a lesson I learned far too late in the game and am proud my children are learning early. It will lead them away from hardships I had to endure. They'll have their fair share of pain, of course, but it will be genuine and real, not concocted from the minds of theologians, preachers, and leaders looking to advance their agenda. They'll know how to face it and know that it is not God punishing them, it is the result of theirs and others' actions, natural disasters, and all things grounded in reality. After all, a problem is just a problem if you're not having to engage in a fight with a demon. That mountain begins to look really small when it is within your power to climb. Thank you for listening feel free to critique and discuss in the comment section of this post. I look forward to interacting with you.